Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. I love it when we're under pressure. Kat resorts to uh, interpretive dance numbers (laughs) to express how she feels. And uh, yesterday was no exception to that. What was that exactly? I mean, I enjoyed it. That was uh, If I Don't Have You by Whitney Houston. I see. Thank you for asking. And you did several different interpretive dance moves involving leaning through a doorway seductively. I just love being married to you. I had no idea what was going on. You just burst into the room mid-song and start flailing about in a um, seductive manner. Stop saying seductive, you weirdo. It was so seductive. Um, Nothing about it was seductive. I've seen you at your worst. And it's still seductive. What the fuck is that supposed to mean? Okay, let me rephrase. No, I'm really curious. I'm, I'm, when was my worst? What was, did that look like It was to less you? good. I look at it this way. It, good is a sliding scale, mm-hmm. and it's just good, and then gooder, <laughs> and then even gooderest. So what you were referring to is the low end of good? Yeah. I yeah. Was, yeah, uh-huh. right. Yeah. Still good. Sure. Still, I think we should move on, because we're getting mired in semantics. Is your story... A bright, fun, happy, or is uh, it a boo? It's it's neither, really. It's kind of mid-ground. I would say it would lean more toward uh, non-gore, non-horrifying. Okay, but that's clear, Okay, I think. Want to go first? I do. That would be really goodish of you. Obviously, to rank the awfulness of types of murder is insensitive and pointless, but for me, family annihilators yeah. are particularly upsetting. That's, that's on the higher end of the uh, sliding scale of wicked. Um, so this is your trigger warning. Thank you. It's 1950, and the Korean War is in full swing, and John List was recalled to active duty. Ah. He met a woman named Helen Taylor. She was the widow of an officer, and she was living nearby with her daughter, Brenda. 
John and Helen ended up getting married in December of 1951, and they moved to Northern California, where he worked as an army accountant. I then learned that John List earned a bachelor's degree in economics from the University of Wisconsin in 1992. I bet they want that back. You can't say that. Why? Because it's the different John List. Obviously, he didn't get his bachelor's in 1992. There's an economics guy named John List, and I got... I pulled up one of his articles as oh, well, so I was okay. going back and forth, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. I did. Oh, I see. A whole different list. Which is really unfortunate for that guy. You, you should have made a list list. <laughs> so anyway, this John List completed his tenure with the military in 1952 and moved with Helen uh, first to follow work in Michigan and then to Rochester, New York. They had three children together, Patricia, Frederick, and John Jr. In 1965, List accepted a position as vice president and comptroller at a bank in New Jersey and moved his wife, children, and his mother, Alma, into a home called Breeze Knoll in Westfield. Now, this home is amazing. It's a 19-room Victorian mansion. Wow. Marble this, stained glass that. Absolutely incredible. And they attended the Redeemer Lutheran Church every Sunday. They were very devout Lutherans. And List taught Sunday school. To those in the neighborhood, their life was pretty idyllic, except, as so often is the case with people who work too hard on the exterior mm-hmm. and not enough on what's going on inside, things were not so great. Like I always say, if you take more time worrying about your, wait, what is, what's that word? If you worry, if you spend more time worried about your siding than you do your foundation, mm. you're going to have problems. Plus you got to keep your gutters clean. That can work How would that? E- either way. Okay, fine. John lacked social skills, and coupling that with his extreme rigidness and his religious beliefs, his personality made him difficult to work with. People described him as cold, and this may have been one of the reasons why he had a hard time keeping a job, and it may have been why he lost this last one. In 1971, John List lost his job at the bank. He's 46 years old, but apparently he's incredibly immature because he refuses to tell his family that he's out of work. Instead, like a dingbat, he continues to go to work every day. He gets dressed, puts his suit on, Mm -hmm. you know, and then he leaves the house all do-do-do, go under the job, burp, burp, burp. But then he spends his whole day hanging out at the train station. The train station. Napping or reading the paper okay, all right. or whatever. Well, I guess, you know, you can fit in there as a person who needs to kill time. Just wish it had stayed at time. Mm. He's also secretly skimming money from his mother's bank accounts to pay the mortgage. Now, he refused to go on welfare, as that would be very embarrassing. Meanwhile, Helen has started drinking a lot, and John feels that his popular, socially active teenagers were not devout enough, that they were focused on all things children can be focused on and were becoming spiritually inferior. 
especially Patricia, the oldest of their shared children, who was interested in becoming an actress, and he thought that, that was improper in the eyes oh, of God. Oh, that's a fast track to hell. Right. List eventually had to take out a second mortgage, and as time went on, the situation only got more dire. He was on the brink of a total financial collapse. So, on November 9th, after the List kids went off to school... Brenda, at this point, is out of the house living elsewhere, so it's just Patricia, Frederick, and John Jr. John came back into the kitchen where his wife, Helen, was drinking coffee and shot her in the back of the head. Yeah. He then went upstairs and shot his 84-year-old mother while she was eating breakfast. Next, he went to the post office to stop the family's mail. He then called the children's schools and explained that his wife's ailing mother in South Carolina needed them so they would all be out of town for a while. He closed his bank account and then returned home. He dragged his wife's body into the ballroom. This house has a ballroom. I want a ballroom. And laid her out on a sleeping bag. He left his mother in her upstairs apartment in the attic. What goes through a person's mind where they say, okay, we're going to put this person here that mm -hmm. I've killed, but mm -hmm. this one goes over here. I mean... Um, from what I understand, his mother was too heavy to move. Okay. So he so just didn't bother like a, dragging her into the ballroom. Like a Gilbert Grape kind of thing. Oh, no. Yeah, I'd kind of forgotten about that movie. Mm -hmm. All right. He then tidied up. And made himself a sandwich what? while waiting for two of his children to return home. See, I can't eat before I fly I know. because I'm nervous. I know. Um, this guy kills his family and then sits down for a fluffinutter. As his daughter Patricia, then 16, and his younger son, Frederick, 13, arrived home from school, he shot each of them. But his middle son, John Jr., was his favorite and still at school. He had a soccer game. So John List drove to the school to watch him play in his soccer game. Wow. He then drove his son home and shot him repeatedly. What the hell, dude? Then, like he did with Helen, he took the children's bodies into the ballroom and laid them out on sleeping bags. He then sat down and wrote a five-page letter to his church pastor, who he thought would totally get why he made this choice. Yeah, that's so often the case in, in stories like this where somehow in the uh, murderer's mind, they are doing what's best yeah. for their family. Well, that's also a trait of a narcissist who can justify anything that they've done for mm. their well-being. Right. But it doesn't matter who it affects or how. He then went through the house, cutting his own picture out of every family photograph with scissors. That makes it sound like the photographs have scissors in them. He then went through the house using scissors to cut his own face out of every family photograph. Yeah, it gets weirder and weirder yeah. with this guy. It's thought that he may have done that to help conceal his identity. Like when police were looking for him, they wouldn't have a photo to use. But, but it just sounds creepy as hell. Yeah, it does. And, and if you're concerned about that, why not just take the whole photo with you? Right. Or not kill your family. Well, that too. Yes. The next morning... After sleeping in the house, he turned down the thermostat, put religious hymns on to play over the intercom system and fill the empty rooms, and turned all the lights on in the house. Then he departed. It wasn't until 29 days later, on December 7th, that the crime was uncovered. 
29 days. It had been several weeks, and Patricia's drama teacher got a little suspicious that she hadn't returned to school. So he and another teacher went to the List home to investigate. The neighbors, who were already suspicious because they had watched the List's house windows and seen the light bulbs blow out one by one from across the street, they saw people snooping around the house, so they called police. When police arrived, you can imagine the scene. Um, was the music still playing? Yep. Oh, that must have been just... Nightmarish? Yeah. They found the bodies and the letter to the pastor stating that he had killed his family out of mercy. Now, again, he confesses in this letter, mm. but then he cuts his photos, his picture, his face out of all the family photos mm -hmm. so they can't identify him. Right. All right. But he said he did it out of mercy, and he had saved their souls. Whew, thank mm. goodness. Mm. Of course, he hadn't taken his own life because that would be a sin. Wow. See, wow. if he had taken his own life, there wouldn't be that time to be forgiven by God. Whereas in this case, yeah, he did those murders. He murdered his family. But then he had the time to be forgiven. Good for him. Huh. That's an interesting interpretation of scripture. Yeah. Helen and her three children were buried at Fairview Cemetery in Westfield. Alma was cremated and interred back in Michigan. The FBI found the family car parked at Kennedy International Airport in New York City, but they didn't find John List. And eventually, the trail went cold. So I guess the picture thing kind of worked. Nine months after the murders, Breeze Knoll which had remained empty since the murders, was destroyed by fire. The destruction was officially ruled arson, but it remains officially unsolved with no suspect to this day. Hmm. 18 years later, in May of 1989, the story of the List family was told on the TV show America's Most Wanted. I remember watching that. You do? Seeing that particular episode. Wow. And then hearing the follow-up later. No spoilers. Sorry. The broadcast featured an age-progressed clay bust that was crafted by forensic artist Frank Bender. The bust featured horned-rimmed glasses. Psychologists theorized that List would wear the same glasses that he wore as a younger man to remind him of his more successful days, you know, before wow. he murdered his family. Wow. Well, the FBI started getting tips, and one tip came from a woman in Richmond, Virginia. She thought that her next-door neighbor, Robert Clark, looked an awful lot like that bust. Her neighbor also happened to be an accountant and religiously, if you will, attended church. Ah. Police followed up on the lead and arrested John List on June 1st, 1989, just nine days <laughs> after America's Most Wanted broadcast. I've often thought, what went through the neighbor's mind, the person right. that called the tip in, when they look across the street and the feds are taking this asshole down? Right? Like, oh, I guess I was not wrong. <laughs> okay. The thing is, John List continued to stand by his alias. He claimed that he was Robert Clark and they had the wrong man for months. Even after his 1989 extradition to Union County, New Jersey, 
he held up the Robert Clark case. But eventually, when his fingerprints were matched with List's military records and evidence was found at the crime scene, he confessed to his true identity in February of 1990. And in April of 1990, List was convicted on all five counts of first-degree murder. During the trial, he shared his rough goings. He talked about his job loss and Mm. how upsetting that was for him, how he couldn't request public assistance because that would just be too embarrassing. Yeah. And because of the strict a man needs to provide mindset that he'd been raised with, his brain told him that murdering his entire family was a better option. Wow. That's not what they mean by providing for your family. Now, he also talked about the really sad story about how he was tricked into marrying Helen in the first place and that she'd become unattractive and made him feel bad about himself. (laughs) He appealed and it was denied. And John List died in prison in 2008 at the age of 82, which great. I'm excited about. But he was then buried next to his mother, which I think is shitty. Mm. And maybe it was his wish, but I don't think it would have been hers. No, I'm pretty sure she would have gone, John, you find your own place. Right? No, absolutely not. You stole from me. Not to mention the lead in my head, bastard. You're a bastard, son. Now leave me be. An article by Rick Hepp later that month stated that no one had claimed his body. Good. One of the most upsetting things about this story for me is that estimates indicate that Breeze Knoll was worth over $100,000 in 1971. That would be about three quarters of a million dollars today. Wow. So he had that available to him to use to save their financial situation. But instead, he opted just to murder his family and start fresh. Right, because he put a second mortgage on it and he leveraged all of the equity. And when that ran out, he no longer had that property. What an idiot. Yeah, that pretty much sums it up. Mm -hmm. When we were in Pigeon Forge, we went to the East Alcatraz Crime Museum. I loved it. And we got to see John List's bust. Yeah, the real one, the one that uh, they used to identify him. And also we saw Ted Bundy's Volkswagen. Yeah, but the bust was so much more thrilling for me because this (sighs) is a story that I have known for a long time. And it's what got this man captured. And they did such an incredible job. It is Mind-blowing. I will post a picture of John List when he was arrested and the bust side by side. Freaky. It's, I don't even have a word. It is mind-boggling how good they did. What an amazing job they did with this bust. That was also one of my highlights of the East Alcatraz uh, Crime Museum. But the item that terrified me the most was the Pogo the Clown costume. Yeah, that was pretty rough too. John Wayne Gacy's clown outfit. Holy crap. It's no wonder people are terrified of clowns. Well, yeah, they'll, they'll kill you. Bury you under their house. That was going to be my next sentence. So weird. That is weird. Anyway, I got most of my information from America's Most Haunted, All That's Interesting, NJ.com, and of course, Wikipedia. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids. And they live about 3,000 miles away. And my daughter is expecting a child. And she has been sending me 
updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parenting kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. And now, that thing in the middle. Louie Louie was a huge hit in 1963 by the band The Kingsmen. Since that time, it's become a standard in pop and rock. But did you know, the FBI investigated the song Louie Louie because people thought the lyrics were dirty. After three months, the FBI abandoned the investigation because it couldn't make out the words. Lizzie K. Michaels sent us uh, an email, a topic suggestion. You should cover Matahari, the female spy. That That is an actually mm. a very good suggestion. Also, they said, I'm currently on episode 298 and I've been trying to catch up. I think it would be a riot if you gave me a shout out and by the time I catch up, I will have forgotten I wrote this and it will creep me out. 
It'll feel like a boo effect, but it's not really. All right, Lizzie K. Michaels. <laughs> Your past is calling. Mason sent us a message. Hey, y'all, listening to Box 477. And Kat says she wants to start visiting the UNESCO World Heritage Sites. Yes, I do. Thank you very much. I'm driving from Atlanta to Miami on 11-6 so that I can visit the Everglades, a UNESCO site on the 7th and 8th. When do y'all want me to pick you up? (laughs) (laughs) And I wrote back, that's my birthday. Oh, crazy. So that would have been a very cool birthday trip. But yeah, um, we're not going to be here. Otherwise, I might take you up on that. Also, Brittany tagged us in a post on Instagram, but I didn't see it in time. So it just says, Brittany tagged you in a post on Instagram. Then it's like, this is not available. Aww. And that's the most frustrating thing for me is because I miss them so often and I don't know what happened. I'm sure it was nice. <sighs> Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you know what the curator has in common with a serial killer? Damned right you don't. This is The Box of Oddities. All right, here we go. Mr. Crowley, what went on in your head? Mr. Crowley! Mr. Crowley, did you talk to the dead? Your lifestyle to me seems so tragic. With the thrill of it all, you fooled all the people with magic. Yeah, you waited on Satan's call. This is a story of sorcery and witchcraft. I am in. And it's all true. Now, it's uh, referred to as the Battle of Blythe Road. It's the time when poet William Butler Yeats and Alistair Crowley had a magic duel. Alistair Crowley, born Edward Alexander Crowley in 1875. He was uh, known for a lot of different things. Besides being the inspiration for the, for the Aussie tune, Mr. Crowley, he, he was an English occultist. 
ceremonial magician, poet, painter, novelist, and mountaineer. <laughs> that one doesn't really fit in there, does it? <laughs> nope. It's like, okay, I play saxophone. Mm-hmm. I'm an accomplished opera singer. I have a vast orchid collection, and I can also deadlift 450. (laughs) He founded the religion of Thelema and identified himself as a prophet in that religion. And it was up to him to guide humanity into the eon of Horus in the early 20th century. He gained widespread notoriety because of his recreational drug use, right. his bisexuality, mm-hmm. and his religious doctrine, which was certainly occultist and some would say satanic. It's been widely reported that L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology, was deeply involved in the ritual magic of Aleister Crowley, right. and that the uh, occultism from Crowley played a part in the development of Scientology. William Butler Yeats, on the other hand, was an Irish poet, dramatist, writer, and considered to be one of the foremost figures of the 20th century literature. And mountaineer. He was a driving force between, uh, behind the Irish literary revival he helped found the Abbey Theatre. He also served two terms as senator of the Irish Free State. And while studying poetry at an early age, he became fascinated by Irish legends and the occult. It was this common interest between the two men in the occult that ultimately led to their paths crossing. It was 1900, and both Crowley and Yeats were members of an esoteric secret society called the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. In this organization, it, they embraced the study of magic. At first, I thought you said the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dong. <laughs> That's a whole different secret society. Right. Sorry about um, that. It's very secret, in fact. Um, oh, another notable member of this society was Bram Stoker. Oh, wow. Yeah. This is a cool group. It is. The Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn was a secret society that was devoted to the study and practice of the occult, metaphysics, and paranormal activities during the late 19th and early 20th century. That's according to Wikipedia. It was known as a magical order. It was active in Great Britain and focused its practices on spiritual development. The Golden Dawn became one of the largest single influences on 20th century Western occultism. In its early days, as it was being founded, in specifically October 1887, one of the founding members of the order claims to have written to a German countess and prominent Rosicrucian named Anna Sprengel. It was said that Sprengel had the ability to contact certain supernatural entities that were known as the secret chiefs. The secret chiefs are said to be a transcendent cosmic authority of spiritual hierarchy responsible for the operation and moral caliber of the cosmos or for the overseeing of the operations of an esoteric organization that manifests outwardly in the form of a magical order or lodge system. So were the secret chiefs lodge system? Interesting. Like yeah. the White Lodge? Could be. Interesting. Um, what Were the secret chiefs human or no? They were said to exist on higher planes of being or to be incarnate. Occasionally, they do incarnate where they gather for a meeting at a special location such as Shambhala. On the road to Shambhala. They also are just scattered around the world working anonymously. They'll just pop in from time to time. Allegedly, the secret chiefs gave the the hermetic order of the Golden Dawn a big spiritual thumbs up to proceed. 
It wasn't long before most of the members of the London chapter of the order became extremely uncomfortable with Mr. Crowley and his interpretation of the practices and rituals. A.K.A. Mr. Alarming. Yates was the most vocal in his opposition to Crowley being a member. Yates convinced most of the others that Crowley should no longer be welcomed in the order. And this angered the occultist. Alistair Crowley was pissed. Now, Crowley had been given a heads up that this might happen and that Yates would be the one that would uh, face off with Crowley. So Crowley consulted a magician and the founder of the Golden Dawn, McGregor Mathers. I just think that my life is so boring that I never have to consult a magician. (laughs) (laughs) Mathers told Crowley to use magical spells that would convert the other members of the Golden Dawn and uh, decide in his favor. And part of that ritual, he said he had to dress in Celtic garb. Oh, like to kilt, did he? Yeah. So now, both Crowley and Yates were deep believers that uh, their occult skills would have real-world effects. Uh, They believed that their magic was real. Mm -hmm. As Crowley was leaving the organization, before he left, he wanted to take some of their top-secret papers with him. Their magic papers? Their magic papers. And so he shows up at the lodge wearing his Celtic garb. He came in armed with daggers which is weird because I thought his magical skills were great. Maybe they were magic daggers. Maybe they were. I don't know. So anyway, he shows up the London headquarters of the Order of the Golden Dawn, which is located on Blythe Road, where it was then. Immediately an altercation took place. According to Richard Ellman, who wrote a biography of Yeats, Crowley stormed into the lodge and immediately attempted to ascend a flight of stairs to where the secret papers were held. Yates and other members of the Golden Dawn confronted him at the top of the stairway. Standing at the top of the stairs, Crowley on one side, Yates and the other members of the Golden Dawn on the other. Thou shalt not pass. Yeah, they started shouting spells at each other. Oh, I man. picture them dressed in like wizard hats and robes like Harry Potter, waving their magic wands around, yelling at each other, casting spells at the top of their voice. Magical Yates. Yates. <laughs> Yates. Magical Yates. Anyway, sorry. So they're at the top of the stairway and they're screaming spells at each other. And according to Elman, quote, when Crowley came within range, the forces of good struck out with their feet and kicked him down the stairs. So the spells didn't work. So they threw him down the staircase. Well, maybe it was the spell that... It's hard to say. Yeah. Yates would later describe the duel with Crowley as ending with Crowley being forcibly removed from the building And then police were phoned to make sure that he would not return. What was Crowley's version of this? I wanted to leave anyway. Yeah, it's pretty much it. I was going anyway. Just the idea of a bunch of middle-aged men from the Victorian era standing in a hallway in a mansion yelling spells at each other, to me, is hilarious. (laughs) Especially when their spells don't work and they resort to throwing a guy down the staircase. I love it. Yates remained a member of the Golden Dawn for 32 years. Crowley went on to found Thelema. Uh, He preached a hedonistic lifestyle, and his lifestyle led to the English press referring to Crowley as the wickedest man in the world. Apparently, the curses and the magic spells that they had both hurled at each other didn't succeed. They both lived long lives, 
certainly for that day. And with, probably just canceled each other out. <laughs> maybe that's what happened. Yeah. Yates passed away in 1939 at the age of 74, and Crowley in 1947 at the age of 72. And despite their best spell-casting efforts, both men appeared to have died of perfectly normal causes. My source information, Wikipedia, Mental Floss, and the University of California Press.edu. Wow. Way to go, Mr. Crowley. See, this is what happens when you have a lot of money and too much time. Mm. Well, this episode drops on, I think it's the 10th of November, and you and I are transatlantic. We're in the middle of the ocean, and what we're going to try to do in the next day or so is a Zoom call or a Zoom meeting with our patrons. From the Bermuda Triangle. Bum, bum, bum. If you've considered becoming a member of the Order of Freaks and supporting the podcast on Patreon, now's a good time. That Zoom freak gathering is about to take place. You can find all the information on how to become a member by going to the website, theboxofoddities.com. And hopefully we will speak to you from a body of water that is very similar to every other body of water. But spookier. We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, Women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.